Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 164. Working Class Audio. Navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here is your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Jacques. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is Session 164 you're listening to. My guest today is the one and only Steve Albini, recording engineer, owner of Electrical Audio in Chicago. And of course, Steve doesn't really need an introduction as he's one of the better known engineers out there in the world. But he is known for his work, of course, with Nirvana and Page and Plant, PJ Harvey and thousands. That's right. I said thousands. Yes. Thousands of bands over the years he's worked with. Uh, he's very articulate. He's very funny. And in my opinion, he's, he's downright professional. He's definitely uh, one of the guys out there working in the trenches that uh, has great respect for his clients. And I, I really admire him for that. So Steve Albini here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. So I had a great time at NAMM, as I mentioned in my last episode, but it's great to be back home, of course, and uh, great to be uh, back with the family and such. But one of the things that definitely stuck out was when I walked in to my studio, and as I have mentioned in past episodes, I have a whole new studio set up. You know, before it was like kind of a janky IKEA desk, and no offense, IKEA, but it was just this tired old desk, and it was, you know, packed full of stuff, and I had you know, just cables everywhere and a very disorganized uh, studio setup. And, you know, you get used to that after a while, but then when you change up, it just completely changes your attitude about about work. You walk in and you're like, oh, I work here. This is nice. And as I mentioned, I did choose the whole Zaor furniture thing, and I went with the Ondamac 12 and the speaker stands and the rack and all that. Beautiful stuff. Um, Really great to come into the studio, walk in after being gone for several days and seeing all that and going, oh yeah, this is my place. Very nice. Um, I did stop by the Zaor uh, booth and they have a really cool new thing. And I don't know, there's a lot of us out there who have back issues and really need a standing desk, but there, there is no solution in the world of Pro Audio that's going to support that because you need it to support you know, some gear and some speakers and... There's nothing out there, but now there is, and Zaor has this solution. I posted a picture of it uh, on the last episode. If you come to workingclassaudio.com and you look below, there's a picture of that. I will post that picture yet again so you can see it. Beautiful new desk from Zaor. Uh, they were showing it in like a white with a wood trim, and I'm not a big fan of white furniture. Just, I don't know. In general, I'm not. But I will say, with this wood trim, I thought, hmm. Did I make the right choice? Should I have gone with a standing desk? And, and basically, I just said, no, I, I think I'm just going to stand up and, you know, I'll, I'll stand up from time to time and take a break and walk more during the week. But, uh, you know, on that topic, one thing I learned from former WCA guest John Greenham is that when you have a chance to get up from your sitting position, you should do it. There are, there are plenty of chances when you're working, such as when you're sending files to people or rendering something or uh, or, of course, when you run out of coffee and you got to get up and stretch those legs to, to get some coffee. So, it, it you know, it just really brought up the whole concept of, 
you know, not sitting in the same position for hours on end. So whether you go with the standing desk thing um, from from Zayor or whether you just uh, get up and walk around more, either way, just stretch your legs and do more of that. Um, moving on, many of you get Working Class Audio, get the podcast from places like Spotify, Google, or iTunes, and you may not have visited the website. Uh, if you have a guest suggestion for me, stop by workingclassaudio.com. You'll see a link to the guest suggestion form. It's a very simple form. Fill that out. Please don't add yourself. Just, you know, nominate somebody else. Somebody that you feel uh, can really add to the conversation. That would be great. And ideally someone who's in the trenches working, you know, whether it's in music or game sound or film sound or if they're, uh, you know, a, a teacher as well. I'd love to hear your guest suggestions. Uh, it's always get, great to get new people. They don't have to be famous. You know, they don't have to be uh, well-known like Andrew Sheps or Steve Albini. Um, I, I like to talk to, you know, working class people, people that are actually in the trenches doing work day to day. So, yeah, check that out. That's at workingclassaudio.com. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know if you don't know them is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. 
If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Enough of me jabbering here. Let's get on with it. Let's talk to Steve Albini here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I appreciate you uh, taking the time to speak with me. No problem. As as I mentioned, I'm a bit of a podcast whore. We've met numerous times in the past over the course of uh, Tape Op Conference and Potluck Audio. That makes sense. Through Craig Schumacher. And in fact, I have fond memories of you bringing an espresso machine to one of the events and you kindly making me uh, one hell of an espresso. We sort of pride ourselves on quality coffee here at Electrical Audio. And whenever we would go to one of those things, we would usually bring an espresso machine and try to carry on the tradition of quality coffee wherever we are. I can appreciate that. I'm a, I'm a big coffee drinker. Well, I'll, I'll just jump in here. In an effort to understand a band that is coming in to record with you, mm -hmm. that you're totally unfamiliar with, that you've never heard, mm -hmm. do you do any preparation ahead of time or research on the band, or do you just wait until they arrive to have those discussions? There's a, a very brief sort of debriefing that we do when someone is booking a session to get an, a handle on the number of people in the band, the instrumentation, um, what the live lineup is going to be what their expectations in terms of how much material they're going to be recording is. There's a kind of a categorical debriefing I, is really the only term that I can use where we try to, I try to get a grasp on what the session is going to look like from a technical standpoint and from a standpoint of the demands it's going to place on me and on the studio. The style of music that they want to make and the artistic choices and that sort of stuff, that's not really my ballpark. And also it doesn't really, doesn't really matter. You know, yeah. as long as I, I know what the implications of their aesthetic choices are, like, for example, if they're if they have an aesthetic that they're shooting for where it's a, where it has a stylized sound or, or a very particular acoustic treatment to one instrument or another, like, say, they want to have very dry drums or they want to have, a, you know, a mass of backing vocals, that kind of thing. Anything that I can prepare for in advance, then I'll make sure that I don't drop the ball in that regard. But as far as the style of music and that sort of stuff, I, yeah, I, I don't give a fiddler's fuck, really. That's yeah. all up to them. And I've watched numerous videos. It's pretty well documented about your stance as a service provider. You use the analogy, uh, th if I'm there to at your studio to get a haircut, so to speak. Yeah. If you go to the barber, you need to make sure you have a competent barber, right? And right. there used to be black barbers and white barbers that would specialize in different physical kinds of hair. You know, that's much less of a, of a thing anymore. But you need to go to a barber that understands your aesthetic, that that knows what kind of haircut you want or that and that will cooperate with you, you know? There was a barber that I used to go to, and he did a fine job on my hair, but he would go off on these diatribes uh, about, <laughs> you know, his ex-wife or the the way women are getting uppity, that kind of stuff. And eventually that stuff just wore me out and I couldn't take it and I've stopped going to that barber. So then I went on a hunt for another barber and I found a barber that was like, 
music fan and, you know, knew who I was and was really excited about cutting my hair and lavished undue attention on me and spent way too long getting my hair cut. And and the end of it, you know, the haircut was actually kind of crappy. My preferred haircut is a very short flat top, very short on the sides, flat on the top. And a flat top is a slightly technically demanding haircut for barbers. So you have to go to a barber that has is pretty good. You can't go to a crappy, freshly minted barber and expect him to do a good job on a flat top. It was kind of a chore to find a a barber that could cut my hair in a way I liked it. And eventually when I found one, I kind of stuck with him for a while. And then I moved and so I lost that barber and I tried to find another barber and ended up with a right wing barber and I got rid of him. And then I ended up with a hipster barber and I got rid of him. And uh, (laughs) and in any case, there there are a lot of reasons other than that I needed to get my hair cut, why I would choose one person or another. And the same is true for a band coming into the studio, you know. There might be re- might very well be reasons beyond what their music is sounding like that would make somebody not want to have me work on their record. And I totally understand that. And, I'm, I'm uh, you know, that's part of the game. I can't control for that. You may have, may notice that my hair is not cut in a short flat top at the moment, and that's because the last time I tried to get my hair cut was right after the election, and I realized that my preferred haircut had been adopted by the new, young, fascist, alt-right type people, and it galled me, it really irritated me that, that any one of them might see me in my preferred haircut and think, oh yeah, he's he's one of us, or that my haircut would give any of those people any comfort in any way, like make them think that they were welcome. You know, that really started to gall me. I, I watched one of your videos on Mix with the Masters and I was laughing when you were apologizing uh, in the video. Yeah. You for said, I'm sorry, my haircut. My barber and I had a misunderstanding. Yeah. <laughs> I haven't cut my hair since then, and I doubt that I will. I'm certainly not going to cut it into a, get a, get an, a fascist haircut. So, you know, I had f- almost 40 years under my preferred haircut, and that's a f- pretty good run. You know, I can't really complain. <laughs> yeah. Um, other people have the choice taken away from them, and you know, their hair falls out, and they can't have the kind of hair that they wanted to. Like I, I don't have that problem, but my hair was my haircut was taken away from me. by other means and i'm it just seems like something that as an adult i should be able to deal with i should be able to like not concern myself with continuing in a tradition of my own making if it if it gives any comfort or gives any misapprehension that i am a member of the fascist resurgency i just don't i just it's just not worth it to me i just don't want to wear a fascist haircut that's what it boils down to (laughs) that's what it boils down to well okay as far as bands are concerned how do you deal with bands that that come from other countries and there is a a language barrier or potential for language barrier and your desire to provide the professional service that i think you appear to be accustomed to providing but that language barrier can slow things down a bit. How do you handle that? I've gotten very good at making myself understood by using the simplest possible terms or by um, demonstrating what are potential problems. And rather than speaking metaphorically or using sort of wine tasting terms about how something needs to be, you know, 
more sweet or more rich or something like that. I, I can just explain, like, it feels like we're losing low end here or this is not very bright, so it's not cutting through, you mm -hmm. know, things like that. I can use very simple descriptive terms. And I've also, over the years, I've picked up a few convenient shortcuts, meaning the terminology for different instruments or different things in a bunch of different languages. So I can conduct a sort of generic sound check in several languages, like Japanese, Italian, French, Spanish. Yeah, those are probably the, the ones that have come up the most. I can be understood by using, you know, by, by parroting the person that taught me the terms, I can get somebody to play the rack tom, for example, in almost any <laughs> language. Okay. Um, but making myself understood in a deeper sense, generally speaking, these days, anyone younger than about 50 from anywhere in the world speaks a little bit of English. Some people are not comfortable speaking English because they're self-conscious about the, the way they would sound speaking English. They don't want to make a mistake or whatever. I pride myself on making those people feel comfortable making an attempt because mm -hmm. their English is going to be much better than my Serbian or whatever, you know. So <laughs> it's not as big of an obstacle as it might seem to be on first blush. And generally speaking, even within a band, if let's say there's four people involved in the session, one of them might be better at English than the rest. And he's generally tapped to be the translator for the group. And that, that works mm -hmm. Fine, but in the same way that there are conventions within the com the culture of rock bands or jazz musicians or whatever in the U.S. in these parallel scenes in other countries, there are there are also these conventions or you know where every French guitar player will have the same fuzz pedal, for example, or you know every Japanese person will have these references that are specific to the Japanese rock scene that, that you know, things that might seem fantastic to me or to someone who's not aware of it would, might seem corny or overplayed by someone from a scene where that particular move is overly utilized sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So you have to be sensitive to what their tastes are. I was doing a, a session with a Japanese band called Zenigeba many, many years ago. There was a take that sort of broke down, and at the end of the breakdown of that take, the guitar player started playing this riff that sounded like it was part of the song. And I mentioned that, you know, I thought it was cool, and when they did another take, that I was looking forward to that riff. And then the, the, the band just started cackling with laughter, <laughs> because that riff that he played was the jingle for some company, you know, some embarrassed, like a toilet company or something, like some <laughs> something that Japanese people would instantly recognize and that he was doing as a joke and it was like sort of funny ha-ha to him that he threw this little lick in there. It would be like a band from America using the Empire Carpet Jingle or something like that. It was something on that on that level. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, I'm, I'm ignorant of those things. So yeah. I, I think it's important to be aware of your ignorance and to be circumspect about what you suggest or what you ask of bands, because there's a kind of a deference implicit in the relationship where someone has come a long way and hired you to work on a record and is spending, you know, considerable money to make a record with you sort of in charge of the recording, you know, you're controlling all the proceedings and there's a, a likely deference there. Like if I make a suggestion, it's going to carry more weight than if one of the other band members carries a suggestion or if somebody, some friend of theirs makes a suggestion. And that's because, you know, understandably, they've 
come to me for some degree of experience or whatever. So I have to be especially circumspect in those situations about about not influencing their decision-making process because I'm speaking from a position of ignorance, you know. I guess that extra layer added to it when they're coming from another country of the cultural differences that you have to be, I guess, aware of as to not be laughed at over the toilet paper commercial theme or things like that. It's equally possible for somebody else to be offended by me as it is for uh, for me to misunderstand somebody else. Like, I was doing a session in Japan at a studio that was owned by um, a big radio station. And the chief engineer of that radio station was was there during the session. In a traditional framing, he would be doing all of the engineering on a session that was conducted in that studio. Mm-hmm. He had done all of the engineering on sessions in that studio for many years. He was the chief engineer. Of, he had, you know, seniority and high status in that station, in that in that company. Turns out his father was an important person in technical engineering in Japan. Like he was the the radio engineer for the emperor for Hirohito, or you know, like it was. It, this guy was like a the the big sensei, the big kahuna of audio engineers in Japan, right? And he showed up to this session that we were doing expecting me to be like a, a an executive producer type producer where I would just sort of make pronouncements and then he would do all the engineering and get everything done. I, I can't work that way. I've never done anything like that. I, I really only know how to make records as a hands-on engineer. So we sort of cleared it with the company that I would be doing the engineering on the session and that he would be there to make sure I didn't fuck anything up, right? <laughs> that was interpreted as a kind of an insult to him, Oh, right? But he he was willing to do it because that's what he was asked to do. Now, and in Japan, there's a there's a greeting. The first thing that you do when you greet somebody is you exchange bows, you know, and if it's if if you've traveled, then you're expected to bring a gift, right? I didn't come with a gift. For a couple of weeks, I'd been in the company of Japanese musicians doing other records in Japan, and informally in Japan, like this bowing thing where you exchange bows, it's a very quick head nod or just like a, a you know like an informal thing, in the same way that you might say hi instead of hello, how are you? You know that. Meeting somebody is very informal between peers on that level. In this instance, I was meeting somebody who was much older than me, had a lot of seniority over me, had a lot of status. Had I been a Japanese person, I would have been expected to have first brought a gift, and second, when we do the exchange of bows, I would have been expected to bow very deeply and stay down a lot longer. But when I showed up and I met him, I had been used to doing these sort of casual, quick head nod bows. And so I gave him a quick, hey, how, how you doing? One engineer to another, you know, head bow, head bob like that. And I could see, just see him sort of in, unconsciously stiffen slightly. <laughs> it occurred to me that that's what had happened. But there's really no way to apologize for something like that. Like you can't go back and re-greet somebody. Yeah, you know, how do you backtrack on that? Then later in the session, there was a scenario where I wanted to create a specific patch in the patch bay. And this guy was doing all of the patching in the patch bay, partly because everything was written in Japanese and partly because that would be 
a possibility for me to make make a mistake, like and accidentally send this obscene caterwaul over the air to millions of people through the <laughs> FM radio or whatever. Like, <laughs> it, it made sense for him to run to operate the patch bay during the session. So I drew a diagram of the patch that I wanted. And I gave him the diagram and he looked at it for a little while and he started in on it. And I could see that he was starting to do it in a manner that wouldn't work. So I sort of very quickly sort of reached in front of him and and moved a patch cord into the channel that it was meant to be in. And, you know, he and he would just sort of reacted in a really startled way, like as though that was, you know, like I'd slap the dick out of his mouth or something, you know, <laughs> like that, that was really beyond the pale uh, right. that I would be so presumptuous. I learned after the fact, when all of these things, details were relayed to me by another Japanese person, that all of these things that I had done were tremendously offensive. And then I learned secondary to that, that they think of foreigners, gaijin, people who are not Japanese, they, th they cut them a lot of slack in these situations. They, they treat us like babies in that we're, we're not expected to know any of these protocols or any of this custom. So, yes, I was deeply insulting to this guy <laughs> unwittingly, but also he sort of figured, well, yeah, he, that guy's an idiot. I don't have to worry about, you know. <laughs> <laughs> wow. I'm going to jump topics on you now. I really, I like your perspective on the long-term storage aspects of, of analog tape. And I understand why you've, you've avoided using digital mediums like Pro Tools or digital tape machines. But if you were to design the ideal digital recording medium or system, how would it generally work compared to what we have available today? Well, I'm, I'm just going to shit all over your question. Go um, ahead. The, the, from a practical standpoint, from a procedural standpoint, all the things that the digital recording systems can do are great. You can keep multiple takes. You can edit at will. You can apply an awful lot of very powerful processing, sort of, you know, surgically or globally. The digital systems work very well in that sense, right? Mm -hmm. The one thing that they don't have is a kind of a permanent archival storage medium and a, or permanent archival protocol. And so I, my reservations about working digitally are only in a very, very, to a very small degree about the practices, digital practices. Now that digital practices, generally speaking, I think make for weaker records. That is the technique of doing many, many <laughs> takes and compiling uh, a simulacrum of a take from many takes and mm -hmm. fine-tuning all the characteristics of each sound so that it meets some criteria and then assembling all of these individual components into a kind of a mosaic. I think that as a, as a procedure, that procedure that has developed from the digital paradigm, I think makes for weak records. That that's a personal prescription, though, and and I can completely understand someone from an auteur standpoint wanting to make things just so, and is is satisfied by that. So I understand the impulse, and I and I can't say that somebody is wrong for wanting to indulge that impulse, right? But I think as a pro forma method, just you take a a normal band performing their music like always. And then you break it down into these constituent parts and manicure each of the constituent parts and multiply them and layer them and uh, overlap them and create new parts and add new mm -hmm. layers. And it, like all of that 
production being brought to bear just sort of pro forma on every session, I think is enormously destructive. I think it it sacrifices the personality of the people doing the performances. It sacrifices the, you know, the genuine charm of something as it is written or and as, as it is performed. It sacrifices that in service of some kind of stylized ideal. But but that's a small part of my complaint about digital systems. The right. major complaint that I have is that the music is going to disappear. And there is obsolescence built in by design, but also inevitable because of the continued advance in computer technology, firepower, and architecture. It just automatically creates orphans of things that were done on systems that are not compatible with the present day. There is some degree of backwards compatibility, but it's certainly not perfect, and it's not anywhere near comparable to the essentially effortless compatibility in the analog systems, where I can just take a tape out of the box and put it on a machine and play it, and it doesn't matter when it was recorded, it'll come back and I can do whatever I like with the sound, you know? Yeah. I have often been asked what a digital engineer should do to circumvent the problem of archival permanence, and I am convinced it is an intractable problem. I've been thinking about it my entire professional life, and none of the solutions that have been posited seem at all viable to me. You know, if you make multiple copies and distribute them on uh, a cloud or something like that, well, then there are a number of problems with that. One, I can't do that to my client's music. I can't distribute my client's intellectual property in a, to a bunch of different people that are outside of their control and expect them to behave in a, in a way that's consistent with its security and safety. Now, yeah. it, it doesn't really matter. This intellectual property concept, I think, is on its face kind of ridiculous, and eventually it will need to be grappled with in a legal sense. But for the moment, I could be held responsible for something leaking out. If I were to work for an, with, an, with somebody who is famous enough to care, I could be held accountable for that. Um, and it would be an obligation on me to maintain some control over that. So I can't do that. But even if I could, then the specifics of the storage matter an awful lot. Like what format is it being stored in? What physical medium is it on? The distributed notion of ha just having it in the cloud, for example, th that surrenders access of, to that material to whoever it is that's managing the cloud storage. And companies go broke and sell their assets and change ownership. And, and we're not, I'm not talking about something being accessible in the near term of like one to four years. I'm talking about something being accessible in the long term, you know, like a century, right? Yeah. Something that qualifies for archival standard. To, as an archival standard, and there just there just isn't anything. Let me let me run something by you and s just get your take on it. What do you think of the of the idea of a service that does the reverse of digitization by basically taking Pro Tools sessions and archiving them in an analog format? Well, let me stop you there. Yeah, many of the Pro Tools sessions that I have seen. In, encompass many more more tracks than could be accommodated on a physical format. 
So yeah. there may be a Pro Tools session that has 124 tracks as part of as part of its basic session, or 100 tracks, let's say. Okay, it may have another dozen or two virtual instruments playing along in the session. There will be a large number of plugins that are operating on discrete portions of those tracks. You would need to do to make a lot of editorial choices in order mm. to accommodate that on a physical format of reels of tape. You would need to make a lot of accommodations for that. You'd need to render a lot of tracks. You'd need to bus and assign and combine a lot of tracks. All of that stuff would need to be done sensitive to its ultimate use. The proliferation of individual sound snippets that are, that are part of a typical Pro Tools production could be collated into a form that could be duplicated in an analog master tape equivalent, but that would be an extraordinary amount of work and no one will do it. So if you had a simple session, let's say you had no more than 24 tracks in your Pro Tools session and you weren't generating any additional sound that would need to be accommodated in order to, to preserve the details of that session, and if you had written notes about everything in the manner that you would in an analog session where you have a track sheet and you have take sheets and lyric sheets with notations on them and notes on, on things. If you had all of that documentation and if it, the session was, you know, exquisitely simple in that sense, then you could conceivably make an analog archive of it. Mm -hmm. um, that's asking a lot of a digital engineer to abandon all of the flexibility and all of the... Um, you know, all of the nonchalance that they can use as part of their normal operating method to expect them to do that just for the sake of this analog backup. I think, I think that's asking a lot. Another thing that I've noticed is that digital sessions tend to remain in flux right up until the moment of pressing and sometimes thereafter even. You know, alternate lyrics are sometimes substituted. There may be a sample that where the clearance wasn't gotten, and that, so it needs to be removed uh, at the at the last minute and replaced with a virtual equivalent of of that sample. Or you know, any number of things happen in a digital production where the fundament of the entire session changes at the very last moment, right? And mm -hmm. so the session is never really finished. It's just it stops at a certain point. And that's the point where the stereo stem goes off for mastering. The, the session it's, itself is still live. And so when that's closed, if somebody comes back a week later and says, hey, you know, we need an instrumental version for a perfume commercial, you know, you flip open the laptop, mute the vocal channels and print it, you know. That's all, that degree of flexibility would need to be maintained in any archival format. And I just... I just can't fathom how it could be done. So it's you kind of need need to make a decision, I guess, early on of whether or not you're going to stick with an analog workflow or a digital workflow and go with whatever comes with that. Yeah. I, I mean, I totally understand why everyone is working digitally. And when I say everyone, I mean, essentially everyone is working digitally. I understand why. You have a lot more flexibility. You have a lot of power. You have infinite tracks available. You have infinite takes available. You know, the... Options for manipulating the sound are, are limitless. I, I understand that that degree of power and the degree of sculpting of the sound is seductive and that, that it may actually be critical in some instances to like the difference between making something that you like and something that you don't like. I understand that. But I personally can't get over 
the obstacle that I would be recording a session for a band knowing that it would disappear in the future. I just can't get over that. Yeah. And I feel, you know, I mean, every year something happens where, like, they discover a lost tape of some, like, oh, here's a, a... Johnny Cash song that no one's ever heard because the tape box just got discovered. Well, put it out and let's see what it's like. Oh, yeah, it sounds great, you know? And, I mean, that sort of thing is just impossible in a paradigm where there's one session for, for the song and that session is, is recorded in a format that's just bound to become unusable. Well, in, in case in point, uh, I'm holding a copy of uh, The Replacements for Sale live at Maxwell's 1986 that Brian Kehu mixed. And I ran into Brian, and, uh, and he said most of the time he doesn't do any digital transfers. He just mixes right off the tape. And what your point of, you know, discovering these old tapes is, I mean, this is, this is a, a prime example. Yeah, I mean, there are hundreds of those a year. There are record labels that make a living doing nothing but finding old unreleased masters of genre music or idiomatic music and putting out new albums from artists that never got appreciated in their day. You yeah. know, because the information flow was so slow back then, it was impossible to hear every Pakistani psychedelic band, for example. And now yeah. if somebody comes across something and it's and it's fantastic, it can be released and the information flow is much better and people all over the world can find out about it. But that's only possible because the master tape survived. It's not possible. Yeah. It you know, it's only possible because there is a format of, of the music that survived long enough for somebody to discover it and for somebody to appreciate it. Well, let's let's go just a tad deeper into the analog thing, because to the best of my knowledge, nobody's making uh, new analog tape machines these days. And of course, if you maintain the machines we have, they can they can last for many, many years. Yeah, there are several companies that do nothing but refurbish old tape machines. And those machines, once refurbished, are as good as new. And there is existing new stock that is Charlie Bolas in L.A., for example, has inventory of multi-track machines manufactured by Studer in the last production run that were never sold. So they're brand new machines. I just used one two days ago. I was working on a live album and we found a live recording truck that still had a multi-track harness and we rented a multi-track machine and strapped it in the back of the truck and we were able to do a, a live recording in, you know, a full analog session live recording. Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off, and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit on sure. this, but as more and more engineers and studios see a drop-off in clients who use or ask for analog... You can't expect directly, the client to know any of this. If, if they're not asking for it or if the studio doesn't... Or if the studio makes the decision not to do it, then that starts to affect the business's down the chain like JRF or Magnetic Reference Laboratory. Yep. Uh, um, how it's, do you protect yourself or your business against the possibility that one day those companies I mentioned will not be around to support the use of analog because they just can't, they just can't support themselves? Well, everything boils down to its 
hardcore advocates, you know? Yeah. Um, there used to be a time when every street corner had a blacksmith and you could get your horse shod for a couple of pennies, right? And now you might have to drive an hour to to find a blacksmith and or a furrier, and it might cost you five or six hundred dollars to get your horse shod. But you can still get your horse shod. You know, it's not recording on tape is boiled down to a kind of a boutique or specialist interest. Mm-hmm. So recording tape is more expensive. The equipment to record on, you either have to service it yourself, which is what we do here at Electrical. We have a technical staff here. Or you have to pay someone who's conversant in the machines to take care of them for you. I don't recommend that for a working studio. I think it's cost-effective for someone on staff to learn everything they need to know to maintain the equipment. But, you know, if you're only going to do a few sessions a year, then you don't really have any option. So it's boiled down to a, a, a hardcore you know, there are two tape manufacturers now. There's one in the U.S. and one in Europe. The technology for making tape is not secret. It's relatively, you know, it's it's an understood technology. So the, that tech, that mechanism, that manufacturing can be revived at any time, and it's not proprietary or anything. What's happened now is that you've got, a, there used to be dozens of tape manufacturers. There are, Now there are two. There used to be hundreds of options for tape machines. There are now only a couple. But they have survived you know, a quarter century already since what was deemed to be the end of the analog era. And it doesn't seem like they're going away. You do have to, you know, you have to pay more for tape now than you used to. It's not that surprising. You have to pay more for every other thing that a band needs, you know, guitar strings, weed, whatever. It's all more expensive (laughs) than it used to be. (laughs) The only thing that isn't more expensive is time in a proper recording studio. Yeah. So, yeah, time in a recording studio is less expensive relative to the cost of inflated money, for example. Like, time in a recording studio is now relatively cheap, but the cost of tape is a little higher. And I say a little higher, it's a multiple. It's like three or four times what it used to be. But but fortunately, there's there's seems to just be loads of tape machines on the market for... I mean, pennies on the dollar, yeah. what they used to cost. Studers I mean, that- yeah, studers that used to go for fifty to $70,000 are now available for, you know, three to $5,000. Yeah. So, the, but, you know, when you buy a machine with that degree of engineering involved, you're buying a, a really big project and it's going to be a lot of work to keep it going and maintain it. So I don't recommend that people just buy a tape machine on a whim, but I, I think buying a tape machine is a perfectly viable thing for a studio that's going to make it the backbone of the studio. What do you think of the idea that uh, I, I, many studios, they're trying to make tape affordable to bands, so they offer tape free because they're reusing tape from past clients. I'm, I'm curious about what your thoughts on that Yeah, are. that that was a practice that's that's a very old practice that was happening in the seventies and eighties. When I first started bands were, you know, studios were renting reels of tape to multiple clients from a standpoint of the recording. There's no problem reusing the tape. It certainly won't affect your recording, but since my principal, the principal value in analog recording is that you end up with an analog master tape that'll last forever. I don't see the point in just indulging the novelty of saying that you recorded on tape and then not having a tape master when it's then all not over having with. having that permanence. You then you're buying right back into that impermanence of the digital, which is that, yeah, yeah. And it also, seems strange. there is a there is a 
a sort of a broad cultural perception that tape is somehow magic for sound. And I just don't buy that whatsoever. I'm, I, I've been working on tape my whole life. It's an imperfect medium, but it's fine for recording music. Like you can make very good sounding recordings on tape. And the limitations on it and the managing the, the limitations of the format are the things that give character, a sonic character, to any particular session, like which what speed you're running the tape at, what EQ curve you're using, how hard you're hitting the tape, what the background noise level is like. All of those things affect the quality of a, of a session, but you can't say that those are the reason it sounds good. You know, those are all limitations or flaws that you're trying to manage, and it's the job of the engineer to manage those things in a transparent way or in a, in a way that flatters the music. Like, if, if you're running it running the tape machine at high speed, for example, at 30 inches a second for the multi-track. There's a, a concurrent loss in low frequency reproduction when you run the tape at, at high, high speed. You gain high frequency detail, there's perce less perceived noise, so there are advantages to running at high speed, but you're, you're losing a lot of energy in the bottom octaves of the music. And if you're recording a heavy band, for example, where, for example, they might detune their instruments, then clarity and power in that the bottom couple of octaves are super duper important and it's incumbent on the engineer to recognize that and make the adjustment say oh this is a sludgy heavy metal band i'm going to record this at 15 inches a second because the low frequency stuff is much more linear there you lose a little high frequency detail there might be slight slightly more perceived noise but the benefit that you gain from having a flat bottom couple of octaves more than compensates for whatever brilliance you might lose on the hi-hat, you know, that, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. And, and, you know, in, in contrast to that, there might be an acoustic folk act where it's all dulcimer and banjo and there's a lot of open space and any extra noise would be really readily perceived. So that's the sort of session that you might want to do at 30 inches a second because it cleans up the low end you won't get as much like mechanical rumbling noise you won't get as much percussive thumping energy from acoustic instruments that are meant to be bright and sparkly and you won't but you'll maintain all the high frequency clarity and you'll maintain the clear noise-free background that sort of thing those are the things that the analog engineer has to manage like you have mm -hmm. to know the behavior of the equipment and the and the systems and manage those choices but it it it's going way too far to say that sessions sound better because they were recorded on analog tape. There may be there may be practical reasons why the analog methods work well. Like you, you don't wear the band out having them do a bajillion takes. You know, you don't overload a session with overdubs because just because it's possible. So you end up with more more clarity or or more power on the individual instruments because there's less diffusion of that energy to other tracks. Like there, there may be practical things about an analog session that improve the presentation of the music, but it's a mistake to say that the analog technology is the reason something sounds good. Once again, jumping topics on the topic of mentors, who taught you and, and who really inspired you long ago? I'm almost, I'm, you know, I'm almost completely self-taught. And when I say that I'm self-taught, that means that I stole things from everybody. You know? <laughs> so my earliest experiments on tape machines were informed by what I could read. And at the time, that was a very small number of things like the Yamaha Sound Reinforcement Handbook 
um, the SAMS uh, publications, Handbook for Audio Engineers, New Audio Cyclopedia, um, various magazine articles, technical magazine articles, things like that. But the, the in-person experience that I had with other engineers, some of whom were genuine masters, like Ian Burgess in Chicago and John Loder in London, those people helped me tremendously. And I would just grill them with my questions. Like I would do a session and I'd have a problem with the bass drum. And I would take copious notes on what the problem was. And then I would call John, you know, when he had a, a moment to spare from running three businesses and doing sessions constantly. And I would just grill him about the bass drum. Like, what do I do about the bass drum? This is the problem I'm having. And and then he would generously share with me everything that he could about how to manage the bass drum, right? And then that would be that until the next week when I had a problem with a, uh, the heavy electric guitar. And then I would call Ian and you know, ask Ian what he did in that situation or on this record where it sounded amazing. What was your technique for that record that you did that sounded amazing? And so those two guys were enormously helpful. Ian Burgess moved to France and opened a studio called Black Box with his partner, Peter Dimel. Peter Dimel was a really gifted engineer and um, electronics engineer from Berlin. He was also enormously helpful. He would help me out with various, not just circuit level, but component level problems that I was having with equipment. Hmm. Then the other engineers that were my peers at the time, you know, guys like Bob Weston and Brian Paulson and other engineers here in town. There was an engineer named Dave Appelt at a studio called Studio Media. And there was a guy named Sam Fishkin. And when I was just getting started, all of those people were very generous with their their knowledge. Like they would show me things that I didn't know and they would correct me where I wasn't making a mistake and they would give me advice. And all of that contributed to me being able to learn through experimentation what methods and techniques would work for me. Can you share your thoughts pertaining to money management and the business of recording? Because you've had electrical now for a number of years. I know you bought your building. Uh, you did a significant amount of construction, um, utilizing Adobe and that's well documented. You seem to be busy all the time. And I'm just kind of curious about your overall thoughts on studio business and managing to survive over the years, not just on your own, but of advice for others. Yeah, it sucks. It's really, <laughs> it's really hard. Yeah. There was an era when there were record labels kind of throwing money around and there was a lot of money available for recording, like the 70s, 80s, and 90s. The dawn of the CD era, basically. The CD was such a profitable boondoggle for the record companies that they just had way more money than they know, knew what to do with, and they were just throwing money around really wantonly in, during that period. And so a lot of studios got to thinking that that was normal, and they structured their businesses around that kind of largesse, and, it, and they didn't survive. We've always operated on a more peer-to-peer -peer level with the music scene in Chicago. Like, the people that built the studio were, by and large, punks from the music scene, you know. Uh, we taught ourselves how to build a studio, and we built a, mu a studio. The scale that we operate on in terms of our daily rates and the engineering rates and the cost of everything that happens in the studio, we've tried to structure that in a way that is affordable for people who are working musicians and not people who have to depend on some kind of an indulgence from a bigger corporate entity or some kind of backing. Um, 
I it started that way and it stays that way. Like I pride myself on the fact that this studio is a place where a band could raise money on their own, a, a modest amount of money, and then come and have the experience of working in a proper studio with good equipment, good acoustics, good microphones, trained engineers, the the whole you know the full Monty, and that's an experience that's not really available. Uh, except in a proper studio environment like this. So, yeah. you know, I'm proud of the fact that we survived 20 years so far. You know, we've made payroll for 20 years. It's been rough certain weeks, but we've been able to do it. And I feel like that's, you know, one of the thing that, things that's directly responsible for that is the fact that we've kept everything on a very modest scale. Like, we don't get the six-month lockout bookings that were the sort of stock and trade of a lot of studios. We don't get bookings like that. We get a lot of three and four day sessions, five day sessions, two day sessions where it's a band knocking out a few songs because that's how much money they've got, you know, or a band trying to make a record and their, you know, their budget is only so big. So they try to maximize the bang for the buck for that budget. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm pleased that we've been able to survive that long operating that way. And I, I think that's really the only way that the only way to make a, a viable studio is to identify with your clients and rather than trying to exploit them maximally you try to find a structure where your costs are covered without crippling your clients because then your client pool is going to feel eventually your client if you're doing really well if your business is doing really well but your clients are really suffering for it you're going to lose all of those clients and you're going to lose the respect of those clients. And I think that's perfectly reasonable. What do you mean by suffering? Like the sort of round figure that uh, a band can expect to spend on an album these days, you know, a small album, like an independent album that they're putting out themselves or on a very small label, they might have a couple thousand dollars to play with. Um, A slightly bigger act or an actor that's put out, put out records already and has a bit of a following you know, they might be able to raise as much as $10,000 to do an album, right? Now, if we made our, if we structured ourselves so that th- that was just barely enough to get a record done and then so that the band would always feel like they were, you know, completely stressed out every minute in the studio, then it's not hard to imagine what they would do with their next project which is they would try to find a less stressful way to do it you know i I know i understand what you're saying okay that makes sense well uh, a lot of um many engineers and studios are fixated on buying the next piece of gear for their studio and or, or their traveling rig if they're a freelance engineer what are your thoughts on that kind of gear lust mentality of always just like oh i gotta get the next thing and the next thing well i think until you have a fairly comprehensive complement of equipment, you, you don't really have any choice. You really should make your traveling setup or your studio as bulletproof as possible. Like we, we did a lot of acquisition when we were building electrical. And when I was an engineer and uh, had an, a freelance model and also a small home studio, I was buying a lot of equipment, buying a lot of microphones. Um, and I, I did that so that it didn't, didn't have to rely on anybody else. I, so I did that so that if I showed up at another studio to do a freelance gig, I wouldn't have to hope that they had enough microphones in the drawer for me to do a proper rig on a drum kit or whatever. I, you know, I would bring enough mics with me. I wouldn't leave that to chance. 
my first big investment was buying microphones. And I started doing that very early in the process just so that I could have a small core set of equipment that I knew I could get by with. Like if I had that, if I had that traveling case with me, no matter what condition the studio was in, I would be able to make a decent record. And that served me very well when I was traveling primarily. When I built the home studio that eventually became, you know, eventually evolved into electrical audio, I was buying hardware equipment in the same fashion. Like if I needed something, I would, you know, do some research and find out what item I should get, and then I would get that, and then I would learn that comprehensively so that I could get everything I could out of it. Mm-hmm. And I, I totally understand that as a mentality of just wanting to have equipment that makes you bulletproof, that makes it so that you can conduct your sessions without having to depend on somebody else. I think that's a really smart thing to do. Thankfully, analog audio equipment tends to hold its value over time. And generally speaking, is simple enough that you can do maintenance on it yourself. You can do maintenance and repair on analog equipment yourself. And in the process, you learn about this equipment that you're buying, you know, which manufacturers are better about their quality standards and which ones are not so good. And which, like, you'll you'll notice that some manufacturers use kind of crappy construction and components but the f- the front panel looks fantastic, you know. And then <laughs> yeah. other manufacturers, everything is very plain and generic on the front, but you'll notice inside, like, all the wiring is done really, really well. And, you know, they use high-quality components and high-quality and the best techniques for the audio. And that sort of thing is – that's also important knowledge. Those are important things to learn so that you'll yeah. you'll know, like, okay, well – this company makes crap, basically, but you can get by with it in, in a pinch. And, oh, this company, their reputation is well-deserved. They make great stuff, and it's really well-built. So if if I need an equalizer down the line, and I can buy the crappy one or I can buy the good one, I, you know, I tend to buy the good one if I can. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app, and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it, and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro-looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Samply.app. Check it out. I, I think it was at a... Um... Maybe it was at a tape op conference. One of the speeches you you'd given it at some point. You talked about the Laffer curve. Yeah, it was kind of, kind of a mistake to use the Laffer curve. It's a, a general bell curve, but yeah. Laffer the Laffer curve is the bell curve as applied to taxation, which I think is especially in the current political climate. I think is quest is dubious. But right. the the concept being that there's a a bell shape of productivity 
where if you spend nothing on the project, you have no pro you have no outcome, and so you have no results. And as you're willing to spend a little bit more, you get more productivity and more productivity up to a point where you've maximized the the productivity. And additional spending doesn't get you anything, and in fact, it makes the process worse and introduces doubt and uncertainty, and so then you end up being less productive over time. The more, and eventually, you get to a point where you're 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 spending infinite time and money on the project, and you have nothing to show for it. Right? That that was the the example I was trying to make using that. Yeah. Um, I should, it was a mistake to use the the nomenclature, the Laffer curve. I should have just called it a, a be, general bell curve. And I can't remember if that pertained to bands making records or or engineers buying equipment. It applies to a lot of things, but the the time and money spent in the studio is what I was talking about. So, okay. like at the beginning of the at the very bottom end of the of the scale, where you've spent nothing, you have nothing to show for it because you've spent no time and no energy and no money on the session. Mm -hmm. Then, as you spend a little more time and energy, you have a little bit to show for it, and then eventually you might have some completely finished material, and then. You know, there's a lot, there's a broad plateau where things don't get any better. They just change slightly depending on more time and more energy. You, you, you don't necessarily improve anything. You just change the, qual the, the characteristics of it somewhat. And then you cross a threshold where you get off the plateau and you start becoming less and less productive for having spent more time and more energy on it. And then eventually you get to the point where you're hung up on the bass drum for three weeks straight and you don't get anything done, you've spent a fortune, that, that's the far end out here. The point being that you can draw a line across that curve and you can have a good record, a pretty good record that is either inexpensive or very expensive, you know. <laughs> and then as you get closer to the plateau, the difference between those narrows. You should always be trying to operate on that plateau where you have spent enough time and energy and money on the record to get very good results and where additional time and money and energy will not net you very much benefit or will in fact degrade the process and that's where you need to learn to stop you know the the work we do in the studio is very sedentary with the exception of course of setup and teardown do you do anything to maintain your health at all or no i have a profoundly unhealthy lifestyle i ride my bicycle to work in the morning that's about that's the best i can say about you know, 30 minutes of light cardio a day. That's really, yeah, yeah. that's about it, you know. I remember you built something into the studio that could handle uh, taking smoke and dispensing well, it out of the control we just, room. When we designed the air conditioning system in the studio, the conventional way of handling the air in the studio is to have the diffusers, that is the supply of air in in the ceiling, and then have that draw through the room to the return of the air conditioner, which then sucks the air out of the room. What we did was we built the supply into the equipment racks so that the air conditioning supply uh, is always cooling the equipment. Equipment racks generate an extraordinary amount of heat. And if you don't do something to remove that heat, you're going to have a very hot control room. And also the working environment of the equipment is going to be very hot and it's going to age components very fast and you're going to have you know, faults related to stress and heat that you wouldn't have otherwise. So it's important to get the heat away from the equipment. And we did that by designing our equipment racks to be the supply of the air conditioning so that the air conditioned air blows across the equipment first, takes the heat away from the equipment, and then comes out into the room. And we've 
centralize the return so that it draws the everything away from the equipment rather than just sort of randomly swirling the air around the equipment. Mm -hmm. uh, and we don't have smoking in the control rooms anymore, but when people did smoke here, it made a big difference in drawing the smoke away from the equipment and keeping it away from the contacts. And it was, that was a big, a big part of intermittency um, was, well, the principal cause of intermittency is poor maintenance. Yeah. But um, contributing to that or a dusty environment or a smoky environment. Do, do you still smoke or is that... I don't smoke. That... Yeah, I quit smoking a long time ago. But as a matter of comfort, I prefer not to impose on our clients. So if our clients want to smoke, that's fine with me. I don't really care. But um, we try to keep the smoking out of the control room, mainly in deference to future clients who don't necessarily want to smell smoke. Okay. Uh, I got to tell you, I was really, really touched by the article you wrote uh it's which is titled "Why I Haven't Had a Conventional Christmas in Twenty Years." It kind of came out of left field to read, and it was uh, for the listeners. It's where your wife had discovered and brought home thousands of abandoned letters to Santa from not only children but adults in challenging situations. Where uh, you said in an article, those letters had really changed something in you. Yeah, because of the 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 highlight on the poverty and the the struggling situation a lot of people were in. I'm just curious if you don't mind commenting on what did that change in you? Well, I was pretty complacent as a middle-class white guy. You know, I have all the advantages in the world just granted to me. Mm -hmm. um, and, and until you're forced to reckon with the fact that not everybody has those advantages, it's easy to think of yourself as being a neutral or even fundamentally good participant in a system which marginalizes a lot of people and makes a lot of people suffer for the for the sake of propping up all of these privileges that I enjoy, you know. And meeting poor people on their terms in their environment and uh, doing everything I can to help them through the Letters to Santa project has made me a, a better, more compassionate person. It's made me more considerate of other people in the circumstances that they came up in. It's made me you know, it's made me a better person. That's kind of a selfish reason for me to want to get involved in it. But I also, there's just as, as, is an extraordinary amount of need. For the last 40 or 50 years, our society has prioritized making wealthy people wealthier. And the bottom rungs of society have suffered immensely. We have tent cities in Chicago where on, in underpasses, there are communities, you know, established communities of homeless people living under our roadways. And that's just taken as an acceptable facet of modern life. Um, I was just in Los Angeles and uh, drove through Skid Row there, and there's thousands of people living literally on the street. And I don't mean that they are, you know, sleeping rough occasionally, and or they're they're without house, housing occasionally. Their permanent abodes are in boxes or tents or you know some other makeshift shelters, literally on the street. And that's just taken as a, that's just accepted in this country. And I, I find that unfathomable. The people that we cross paths with in the Letters to Santa Project are all people who have asked for help in some way. If you think of that as kind of a middle class of people in need, there is an enormous need below that, that level, which is being unmet. And that is a societal <clears throat> problem that I can't address. But I can go out of my way to find 
ways to help people who have asked for help. And my wife, uh, Heather Winna, she's the engine that runs the entire Letters to Santa project. And she has done an incredible job of raising money every year. There are a few people who are sort of pivotal as well. Jeff Tweedy from Wilco, has he's a friend of our family, and uh, he's been a participant for many years. And he, by himself, he raises an extraordinary amount of money to help with the Letters to Santa project. And um, we've been doing it for more than 20 years, and we've given out well over a million dollars in direct aid to people where we receive the money and we get it directly into the hands of people who need it with no bureaucracy, no overhead. You know, it's the leanest and most direct aid of any that I can think of. Um, almost all charitable organizations have some operating costs. And one of the principles of the Letters to Santa project is that everything is donated. Everyone donates their time, all the space, uh, all the traveling expenses, everything is donated um, so that there is no overhead. When we, If we raise a dollar, then somebody gets that dollar. And um, being a part of something like that has made me realize, first of all, that it is possible on a, on a human scale, like a few people can get together and do something that will help thousands of people. And that's been heartening. But it, it, more than anything else, it's underlined, underlined for me the tremendous need that we have right now because we have created such a greedy society that has valued the wealth of the wealthy over every other aspect of human life. Is there a website uh, for the Letters to Santa program? Letters to Santa Chicago.com is okay. the website that where there is an annual live stream of the 24-hour marathon show, which is a principal fundraiser. And it's possible to donate on that page as well. We work with an organization called the Onward Neighborhood House. Uh, and I believe their web address is onwardhouse.com. And you can donate to them at any time and just indicate that you want the money to be used for the Letters to Santa project. I, um, uh, I'll include uh, links in the show notes for this show for that. And uh, oh, thank you. That's very nice. Make, make, make that aware, you know, for my listeners. Um, I, I got to say, Steve, I, I, I love your sense of responsibility to bands to serve them uh, well and be professional and, and with your the services you provide. But I, I really love this humanitarian aspect uh, that you put out there and the empathy that you have for those in need. It's it's nice to nice to see. Well, thank you. But that I I would like to think that it wouldn't be that that wouldn't be unusual. I think if any if anybody came across the people that we've come across, they would want to help them. And if anybody was aware of that kind of need in their community, they would want to help. And I, I don't think that there's anything exceptional about that as an impulse. It seems like a normal human thing. When you are confronted with somebody who's in a desperate situation to try to help out. And I, I just don't... I, while I appreciate you taking notice of it, I, I think it's more important that people remain involved in their local communities and remain sensitive and aware that there is an extraordinary need um, that is not being met yeah. in any kind of a public fashion. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate. My, my kids in the public schools, we, we send them to, there's a constant uh, sponsoring of families, um, primarily at the holidays for, for families in need. And that's, um, 
that's always a thrill to like come together and try to, you know, give things to families that they're in desperate need of like pots and pans or, you know, coats as simple as that. And all of it is, all of it is fungible. What it boils down to is money. People just don't, people who are poor don't have money. And if anything that we can do to get poor people more money will, it won't just help them. Although that's the reason I want to do it. When you give a poor person money, that money is spent instantly on immediate needs and it's spent in a local economy because that's where those people operate. So then the local economies around these poor families and poor communities have an influx of cash and that influx of money then allows them to buy more goods and services and employ more people. And there's a principle, there's an economic principle called the velocity of money, which is where money that's put in at the bottom of the economic system is spent many times over before it filters up into the very top. And once it gets to the very top, it stays put. And uh, I think it's important for everyone to recognize that these sort of strategic things that are done in policy on a national or on a, even on a local level where they're playing around with the tax base and playing around with the tax rebates and things like that, that's affecting the money at the very top of the economic scale. People who are paying a lot of taxes and then their taxes are cut, that money goes back into the very top of the economic ladder. Whereas it, the money that we're talking about getting money into the hands of poor people, people at the very bottom of the economic system, that money cycles around many, many, many times. Many people get to make use of that money before it ends up in the hands of an oligarch somewhere. So um, while all of these policy things that people spend, wring their hands over, matter, they matter in the sense that money diverted to projects and people at the top of the economic system is money that is not going to be spent again and again the way money that infused into the bottom of the economic system would be. And correct me if you think I'm wrong in this, but I think this reflects back to what you were saying about structuring your studio so it directly can work economically with uh, your client base rather than trying to appeal to the very little money that is left in the top tiers of the Britney Spears and Katy Perry's of the world. Yeah, I mean, we never had that kind of, we never got that sort of business anyway. No, None of those people would come here for a record and I, I, I don't blame them. You know, they would have a bad time here. Um, <laughs> but we've maintained our accessibility to the local music scene because that's what we know. Like, I've been in bands since I was a teenager and I've been surrounded by people who are in bands. So... The, that culture, that that society, um, makes sense to me, and I can and I know the needs and requirements of that. As a you know, when those people who are my peers become our clients, I can accommodate them because I understand them. You know, if there was a completely different idiomatic culture that came here to make records. I might make mistakes with them in the same way that I would make mistakes through a language barrier just because I don't know what their scene expects of them. So part of my job is if I am confronted with something like that, something that's outside of my my normal ken, I have to adapt, I have to learn. And if I'm unwilling to do that, then I should go out of business, you know. But as a day-to-day operational thing, we have to remember that the people that we work with on a day-to-day basis are spending what is to them all the money that they can muster. We have to give them the absolute maximum that we can 
as a benefit for that money because that you know to them it's it's ex- it's extraordinary you can almost always find a free or very inexpensive way of making a recording, right? For someone to commit to spending the kind of money that it takes to go into a studio and do a record in a studio environment, that that's extraordinary at this, you know, at this historical juncture, that's extraordinary. And we have to make sure that people feel like they've gotten their money's worth for having done it. Otherwise, they'll feel like suckers and they won't do it again. And that's not just bad for us. It's bad for anybody else that runs a studio that they might have worked for. Yeah. You don't want to be that guy or that studio that they always point to and go, that was a horrible experience. You want to be the shining example, of course, of what it could be. Well, I know you're busy and it's been great to talk to you. Every time I talk to you, I walk away. Uh, I've, t- you know, many times I've talked to you at potluck audio conferences or, or tape up. Uh, conferences i've always walked away going that guy is so pro on so many (laughs) levels and uh it's always a pleasure to speak with you so well thank you that's very nice of you so thanks again i appreciate it no problem okay take care see you bye-bye steve albini here on the working class audio podcast amazing to have steve on hope you enjoyed that i certainly did Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for, giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. Gotta thank Cliff Truesdale, Chuck Smith, and I want to thank Steve Albini, of course, for taking the time to speak with us. And I want to thank you for listening as well. Be sure and visit us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, as well as workingclassaudio.com. And until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life. Many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.